Welcome to Let's Get Information. My name is Alexa Silvaggio, and this, my friends, is a podcast for seekers, entrepreneurs, spirit junkies, and wellness lovers of all kinds. Each week, we'll be offering you inspiration, education, and co-creation that will help you cultivate an epic life. So let's dig deep, lift up, and thrive through these personal stories, tips, how-tos, and most importantly, great, rich truth. Hello, gorgeous souls. This episode of Let's Get Information podcast is brought to you by The Travel Yogi. If you want adventure, if you want retreats, if you want yoga, if you want travel, if you want to see the world and to eat good food and to experience all that life has to offer you, which believe me, if you're listening to this podcast, I think you're into that sort of thing then please go to thetravelyogi.com to book your next retreat today. Uh, I actually have two retreats coming up. One of them is December 28th through January 4th. Yes, over New Year's, intention setting magic. That's going to be in Panama. And then next May, May 11th through the 18th, I'm going to Peru. And uh, I think you should come. So yeah, come get information with me there. But also, it's time to get information. My wonderful Jamie Green, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I am so stoked to have you. My great pleasure. Yay. Um, So Jamie Green and I have been working together for, what, like six, seven months now? At least. Yeah. It's super dreamy. Can you tell everyone a little bit about what you do, who you are? Yes. Who am I? It's a very, very deep question. It's a super deep question. uh, (laughs) A few things. So I have been a psychotherapist for 30 years. Uh, The last nine and a bit have been working more as a coach. Yeah. I call it mentoring, actually, because I think life coaching has been in this. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I call it mentoring. And um, I had a little eight, nine-year stint of teaching Kabbalah in the middle there. Beautiful. So, yeah, I do a few things. <laughs> you do all the things, I Jamie. Also do, yeah, so uh, one of my big passions is working with men. And I run, I run, uh, do a lot of facilitating with men's teams and stuff around that. Yeah. And again, it's all about mentoring. Yeah. Well, we need you because us, um, us ladies need the men to, to show up as men. <laughs> so thank you for what you do. Um, so what's, what's really inspiring you these days? Like who, who is inspiring you? Who are your teachers? Um, yeah. Who's teaching you right now? That's a great question. Um, you know, I've gone through, uh, I'm 53. I've gone through a few decades of of uh, learnings. So it traditionally always used to be, I had I had mentors that I picked up along the way. One was, um, there's been a few dodgy ones along the way. Who ended up being a bit corrupted, but I learned a lot even from what not to do and how not to be as yeah. a leader. And, but you know, I've, I've had mentors, I've had spiritual teachers, I've had astrologers, I've had um, Kabbalah teachers. Yeah. Uh, a lot of, I, I think the true learning I've got, I mean, all, all the authors, I mean, you know, you name it, Brian Weiss and yeah. uh, M. Scott Peck and Raymond Moody. There's been a lot of those guys. And there was a time, actually, 80s, 90s, where I was having a big spiritual awakening. Yes. And, um, and I would get really deep into these books and I'd want to go experience the authors. I want to make sure they're for real. Yeah. So, and they, you know, these guys would always come down to LA and they'd be doing whole life expos. And so I got to experience Brian Weiss giving, who, who wrote Many Lines, Many Masters. I love that we book. Got to, who, we did like a group 
past life regression. Well, and then Raymond Moody wrote all these books on life after death and life after life. And he's a fabulous guy. And he did the forward for Brian's book. So they did a thing together. Nice. I went to see Louise Hay speak once, like 30 years ago. And well, then, you know, Marianne Williamson. So there's been lots of different teachers. There weren't personal teachers of mine. Yeah. But I think where I got most of the, the, the really powerful mentoring has been the men in my life. Mm. around men's work that I started in 96. Beautiful. Being on men's teams and just, just observing what, what we call mature masculine looks like, mm. where it's men who are direct. And mature masculine is not about macho testosterone nonsense. It's, right. it's about men who hold their own, who, who have core terms they stand for, who um, have a backbone, who know how to be direct. Mm but also know how to get into the heart and be really intimate and vulnerable with each other and real with each other. And that was not something I was taught in English. Yeah, I'm sure. There's not a lot of modeling of that. No. Of anything particularly real. There's a lot of deflecting and sarcasm and chain smoking and sure. Guinness. So, pub, I was just going to say pub culture. Yeah, exactly. So for me to, to going into that pretty shy, introspective, quiet kind of guy, mm-hmm. I was 31, the first one of all, um, Mm. And just witnessing other men be able to be real with each other was real without all the drama and the posturing and the, none of that was yeah. very refreshing. I mean, I, I have a, as you know, an almost four year old little boy. Beautiful. And what I've learned in the last almost four years is these little beings mimic everything. They just mimic and imitate everything you do from the minute they come out. Totally. Which is funny and shocking. And frightening. And, <laughs> yes. And, but what I realized is, you know, the truth is we do that as adults. We don't really stop doing that. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to learn how to write a temp, uh, uh, sorry, a term paper, you download a template and you mimic it. Right. So we're always trying to emulate and copy. So I think that um, the best form of mentoring uh, for me is just modeling, being an example of what it looks like, whether it's about communication or confrontation or vulnerability. Or So I, I really just like to do that. And of course, I'm 53, so now I have lots of experience. When I was 22 or 23, when I started as a therapist, wow. didn't know a lot. Wow. But... Um, Definitely didn't know well. But um, but people, I'm, I'm English, so it sounds intelligent. And, um, you know, and, but I definitely would bring whatever I did know about life. I mean, I had some training. <laughs> of course. Didn't have the, the book smarts, but then you sit in a room with people and then you, know, you have to figure out how to reach people. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing when I think about, I had 30, 40, 50 year old patients at the time who listened to me. Wow. That's kind of remarkable. That's super remarkable, but it's also a testament to who you are. Um, and that's just exactly where you needed to be. Um, what do you think brought you into wanting to even be a therapist? Well, it's not, it's not a wonder. It's a very specific thing. <laughs> it's a very specific story. So yeah. uh, the story is I was, um, I came out from England. Yeah. Uh, I went to Pepperdine as a young 18-year-old. Yes. I studied sports medicine and oh. I did my undergrad in three years. So I had an extra year to kind of play with. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. So I had to be house-sitting for an actor in the Palisades. Like you do. Pacific Palisades, yes. And I was also, you know, in the 80s, I was a drummer. I was mm. a big pop drummer, an assassin drummer. And so I had this life where I was out of institutions for the first time because I went to boarding school when I was 11. So between getting out of boarding school and getting out of university, I was kind of free in the world, living this kind of fun life where I had a year to kind of play with, technically supposed to work in the field of sports medicine, but that wasn't happening. So I was really just playing drums and making money that way. Yeah. And so basically the story is I was going to an Elton John concert at Universal Amphitheater. Wow. My friend, we drove up Sunset. We had time to kill, so we pulled into Chin Chin on Sunset. There was only one of them at the time. Yes. And I basically 
long story short, fell in love with the hostess, wow. as you do. Yes. Went there on John concert, came back, <laughs> and basically moved in with her within a week. This was, the, this was the height of codependency. Oh my God. 1986. So I moved in with her. She kind of mentioned, she alluded to, she'd been in rehab for cocaine. Oh. She just alluded to it. No big deal. No, but I was, I was a very naive, <laughs> I was a very rare musician at the time that never did coke, never did anything. But wow. I was boarding school, so that wasn't my thing. And she didn't do anything around me. So very long sorted story. After about three or four months, she started to kind of end up going back to her drug of choice, which is freebasing mm. cocaine, which is like the crystal meth of the era. Oh, <laughs> Before cute. meth and crystal was a thing. <laughs> Shit. And crap. Before that, there was freebasing cocaine. Okay. Anyway, so that crazy story, she ended up back in rehab. Mm. And I ended up going to every possible significant other meeting yeah. in Al-Anon and wow. discovered codependency. So codependent no more was all the rage in 1986, 87. Yeah. And so combination of my interest in sports medicine, which was really just about, for me it was about understanding the neurochemistry of it all. Um, I just was, I just wanted to understand. I was, I was pretty, it pulled the rug out in a way that I had yeah. never been, it was like a wake up call. It really was a spiritual awakening because I had never experienced anything like that. I came from a very normal, although British family. Yeah. Um, with no abuse and no drugs and alcohol, just, Britishness, yeah. and because um, there's that, but um, <laughs> but basically, I just my quest to try to understand why I was so obsessed, and yeah. confused, and addicted to her, mm. led me to going on and first of all becoming a certified alcohol drug counselor, mm. and then something that is unheard of in England is that you know in England you can't just start a graduate degree in something you've never done at undergrad. Ah. So here you go, yeah, I'm going to do a master's degree in management and HR therapy. That's not done anywhere. Here you can do it. Yeah, sure, you want to do that? Yeah, go Why nuts. Yeah. Go do that. So I did that. I did wow. a 15-month version of that. So it was always, honestly, it was to buy time. Yeah. It was because I didn't know what the hell else to do. I didn't want to go back to England. Um, and it was to get my green card. So I very ambivalently backdoored my way into becoming a therapist. Wow. And it was not my plan. And I, and I suffered because I was ambivalent throughout. Yeah. I turned out, turned out to be pretty good at reading people and working with people, and that was great. I love people, but yeah. did not love the job. Mm. So for honestly 16 years, was so ambivalent that I don't think, I was really operating at 50% of my potential. Whoa. But, you know, I, I became credible. I got my green card. I became a professional and um, helped a lot of people and grew up. And then really what happened was in 1996, I was introduced to this men's weekend. Yes. And that was a game changer for me. Mm. I was 31 of it. And I kind of stepped into my own. And also, you have to bear in mind, as a therapist, you get very isolated. You're kind of, of stuck in a cave all day long, dealing with all these people projecting all that crap onto you. And so it's pretty draining. Oh my God, I cannot yeah. imagine. Especially when you're not loving it. Yeah. And I wasn't passionate about it at all. But then I was introduced to the men's work, and through that, and kind of finding my place among the men, then stepping up the leadership. And, and is this with what's his name up in San Francisco? This, this is the Sterling Men's Weekend. Yeah. Thank Justin you. Sterling, the nut job who's up in Oakland. But yeah. He, but he's done <laughs> on a very powerful weekend. Yeah. And, and, and quite honestly, what the men have created, um, despite his lunacy, um, is very powerful. Really, really powerful. And so that was where I think I, I kind of discovered passion. And wow leadership and found my place and, and loved it so much that it, and it kind of woke me up and gave me a whole new zest for how to maybe work differently with clients because wow. I started to be much more direct and and so there's that era and then that went on you know, for, for a good five, six years and then I discovered Kabbalah. So in, mm. in the, around the millennium, literally December 99 into 2000, um, was when I started, uh, after completing my leadership, I was responsible for like 600 men at the time. Whoa. When I when I kind of completed that and then had a life again, I started taking a bunch of 
Kabbalah classes, which yeah. was really fun. And that opened up a whole other door of possibilities because then I discovered teaching and I was invited to teach. So that really is where I truly found my heart purpose in teaching. And I could have wanted it anywhere at all, to be honest. Totally. To have to be Kabbalah, it was great. It was a wonderful opportunity and I milked it for what it was worth. It was yeah. great. And but really completely came out. I used to be this very quiet, shy, introspective guy. Whoa. People who know me today don't believe that, but yeah. people that did know me then know that. I was just very quiet. And um, wow. so when I got on stage, it was kind of like the drummer in me, who used to be sh hiding in the back, by the way, the shy drummer. Right. I kind of just stepped into my own and, wow. um, and learned how to be provocative and alive and, and impact. And it was, it was like a new leash on life. Wow. And the way that you do lead and the way that you do show up, no matter whether the group is 10 people or hundreds of people, is incredibly effective. And it's, and I think it comes from a place of tremendous sincerity, which I have to also give gratitude to that kind of British part of you, because I think that that is like, you know, in America, we have this kind of, like you talk a lot about masks. Yeah. And and have a nice day. Yeah, 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 exactly. Have a nice day, Matt. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I, I dig that. I dig that a lot. No, I, think, I think it's true. I think we, I appreciate Brits. I've always said that when British people come to, especially come to LA, yeah. after about five years, because there's a bit of a warming in period sure. of culture shock, once they kind of get past the stiff upper lips, they've got the ass thing. Yeah. Um, they're the greatest people on the planet because there's a lot of loyalty and realness about yeah. the Brits. They just need permission to melt and be loving and Cracked open. Yeah, so it takes about five years, and then the same with New Yorkers a little bit because yeah, I lived in New York for a decade, totally and it's kind of the same like just like okay, we're a little okay, we're good, we can do this. Yeah, yeah. I'm from California originally, so yeah. I have like a little bit of both, but yeah. It's in the DNA. yeah, it's in there. It's totally in there. Wow, what made you want to leave the Kabbalah? I don't mean to like bash, yeah, I don't no, know the fine. story, but I'm fascinated. No, I, I, listen, I was, I had a lot of appreciation for that whole part of my, I call it my 10 years in Tibet. It was a bit like going up a mountain, becoming a monk, yeah. meeting God and coming down and go, all right, it's time to get into like, drive a real car and get back to life. Yeah. Um, just because I, I saw the organization itself was, was kind of imploding. There was a lot of egos and corruption and just a lot of nonsense going on that did not work for me in terms wow. of my own integrity. So when I saw the, the leadership become very rudderless and it, it was just clear this was not going to work for me anymore. Yeah. And I have great appreciation for the amazing people in the community and all the stuff that I learned and yeah. some mentoring. And again, it, it gave me, it helped me discover my purpose. So when I left, this is now 2009, with my wife, um, I, I knew what my And you met was. her there. Yes, yes? I did. Okay. Yes. Because you gifts, sure. gifts all over the Yeah. Listen, no regrets, honestly. So when, when we left there, I was very clear, even though I kind of, and by the way, so I, I, I taught for three years at the beginning while I started my practice, and then I closed my practice completely, just in 2004. And I had five solid years where I was dedicated full-time to the Kabbalah Center and teaching Kabbalah and doing that whole life. Wow. I didn't really expect to do anything but that. Yeah. So then when I realized that, okay, this is not going to work, I stepped out of that. And, you know, because of my influence yeah. in my private practice, I knew going back to that was not the answer, it was yeah. very clear. So you know, one of the things I got to do as a Kabbalah teacher was I taught classes at night, which I love, Yeah. but also I got to go into people's homes, the students' homes, and meet with them and kind of counsel them and guide them during the night. Mm. And so the house calls thing was a whole new concept. I thought that was ah. brilliant. I mean, you never get to do that as a shrink. Yeah. So yeah. it just gave me an idea of, you know, what if I don't go back into traditional private practice, which I hated sitting yeah. in the office, 
but I, but I just kind of step into this kind of mentoring, you know, I was kind of like known as a spiritual teacher, spiritual guide. Totally. But I was not interested in going and teaching Kabbalah or starting something Kabbalah-esque. I've done with that. So I thought, you know what, I have, I have a lot of experience. I, I wear a few hats even mm -hmm. then. And so that's really what I started. It was kind of unheard of for a therapist to then turn into a life coach. Yeah. Because my credential as a marriage family child therapist supersedes anything. Yeah. Coaching-wise. So I had the credibility mm -hmm. and the track record at that time, like 20 years. So um, I just thought, you know, how about if I just have the freedom to do it on my own terms? And that's how it started, just meeting people. I would go meet couples in their homes. I would meet people in cafes. And it's a, it was a different model. You have to bear in mind, this was March or April 2009. It was the peak of the recession. I was coming out, starting a whole new career at the worst possible time Oy. in my lifetime. Oy. But, but I, I had such a sense of conviction and certainty in my value and what I did. Yeah. And the model worked because instead of people signing up for a year of therapy that no one had money to do, yeah. it was like, yeah, I'll meet with someone two times or three times or four times. So the model was popular and people liked it because it wasn't therapy. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to describe it when I, did, when I would try to describe, because no one had the idea of what do you mean you were a therapist and I was a coach? Yeah. So I would say it's a bit like coming to someone's home is a bit like doing emotional feng shui. <laughs> so it's like, I'm not going to move furniture around and put red dots in the corners. I'm just going to shift your perspective of consciousness. Great. It was not my brand, but people got it. Because that's really what it's about. Yeah. So whether you drop into someone's home, or by the way, I have coaching clients I've never met all over the country, all over the world, and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because I can do on the phone, I don't need to sit in front of someone, because it's not therapy. Yeah. And also, someone's not going to, you know, have a nervous breakdown and have a panic attack or cry in a cafe. Yeah. So it was kind of conducive to a different format, which was just, let's help people quickly understand what they need to do, get them out of their own way with a plan, and then hold them accountable. That's the coaching part. Just, just like someone would, you know, with their personal training. Just push someone through barriers that they're asking for, um, people need tools, and that's not the therapy model. Really. No, the tools and the accountability piece is huge, yeah. um, because it's true that it, it, like I feel like sometimes therapy can be somewhat coddling, yeah. and it's almost like you're reliving whatever like happened yeah. or whatever, and yeah. it's like it doesn't take you anywhere. Well, I'll tell you what I noticed, and, I, and I'm saying it with all due respect to everyone's process of therapy and therapists and yes. people in therapy now, because you know I did that for twenty years. Yeah. So I, I, what I noticed at that time also was that people get a little bit obsessed with recovery. Right. So people are recovering from childhood, we're recovering from bankruptcy, we're recovering from a horrible relationship. And yeah. our way of recovering is to keep processing the shit out of it and keep talking about it. Mm. And look, I was trained very psychoanalytically. I used to see people where they'd be laying on the couch, that's in twice a week, that's wow. behind them. That was the model I was trained, very old school. Mm -hmm. and, and I realized that, and that could go on for years. I mean, I think my, my mentor at the time, who was my supervisor, who I trained with as an intern, you know, I was with him in his office space for 16 years. He, I don't think he terminated one patient from that time. Whoa. And I think years later, he's probably still doing it. So that's that, that model. You know, nobody really ends the process. I don't believe in that. I think there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to this process. I love that. That kind of work. So I just realized it was time to get up off the couch. So my company's called Off the Couch Consulting for that reason. <laughs> it wasn't about being a couch potato. It was enough with a freaking therapy yeah. model of just sitting and talking about it. So let's get into the steps of moving through. Everyone knows the story. People who come to me, it's never been their first rodeo. Yeah. Everyone's come to me and said, I've never done therapy. Right. Everyone's done that model. They've got a great benefit, but also realize there's more they need. And so therapy tends to not involve a lot of tools and interventions. Tends to not. Coaching is all about that. Wow. 
I love that. Um, by the way, just like a side note, I didn't know that we had so much kind of in common in that boarding school graduated in three years thing. Uh-huh. It's kind of awesome. Yeah. I did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. so good. Zero tolerance for wasting time. Yes. Yeah. Zero tolerance. Yeah. I was like out of there. I went to Syracuse University. I was like, bye. Three yeah. years. Bye. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Totally. Units. To- totally. Oh my God. I think I was seeing like 23 units yeah. a semester or something That's audacious right. and yeah. I didn't care. A type much. Yeah, exactly. 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 But hey, it serves in some ways. It really does. So what would you say, like when people come to you for a coaching session, mm-hmm. like top three, this is what I'm working on. Issues. Uh-huh. Um, that's a good question. I think, well, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit unique in that I am a clinician too. So right. I think that some of, some of the people I get referred, they're also very clinical cases, like dealing with major anxiety. Sure. But a normal life coach has got no business dealing with even though they'll try to, but it's really not necessarily within their scope. Yeah. So I still get some clinical type related stuff because people know that that's who they get. Aside from that, which is on occasion, um, I'm dealing, look, I, I still do, my favorite work is probably still couples. Mm. I mean, I just love being able to get in there and support couples in, in getting out of their own way. So there's, so a, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of that. Um, but you know, I think people are in major life transition. The nice thing about what I do now, and I think, um, because I think of, because again, people are not looking me up. They're not Googling me out of the blue. Right. Most people, if not 95% of people, let's say, who come to me have been referred by word of mouth. So they kind of know what they're walking into. Yes, sure. they look me up and they can see my credibility. I've had like two people, I was on The Bachelor a few years ago as his life coach. So I've had like two amazingly, very, very amazing people I worked with that literally looked me up over that. Yeah. I'm talking about two. Beyond that, and that was lovely, but beyond that, it's word of mouth. So people know what they're getting. So I get people who are pretty together. Yeah. And I get non-functional people. You know, I mean, people are paying me 300 bucks an hour. So they're yeah. definitely pretty functional at yeah. this point. So I get people who are dealing with um, kind of fork in the road, milestone yeah. dilemmas, career change, you know, midlife crisis, let's say. Um, really, I get a lot of people who are trying to find a higher purpose. That's, that's the, mm. my, my favorite thing in the world now. I said it was couples. It is that. But the other, the other presenting issue now is people who really know that even though they've had successful careers, they've raised their kids, but they feel they haven't found their calling. And I relate well, to that because I yeah. lived. I also, I also talk about ambivalence a lot. I was really ambivalent for those 16 years before I started teaching. Um, and I think it's not talked about. You know, totally. people talk about burnout, but it wasn't about burnout. It was about, I knew this wasn't my calling. Wow. But I was credentialed to do it. I was paid well to do it, gave yeah. a lot of freedom. You know, maybe a bit like people have golden handcuffs to work in corporate work where they know that the reason they're there is because the money's great and they can't make that kind of money. Or, you know, a lot of people who are just really trying to awaken and do something with more meaning and purpose. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I refer to um, people being spiritual beings. There are a lot of people think they're not very spiritual. And to me, maybe it's my Kabbalah right now. But I think um, being spiritual has nothing to do with ritual and religion and dogma. For mm. me, it has to do with making sure that everything we choose to do is meaningful for us. Beautiful. That's spiritual. And so I believe that if someone's going to seek me out, they're already looking for more meaning. Yeah. They're not really looking to come a bitch and complain because they're not going to get a lot of forum to just tell stories. They're, they're gonna totally get not going to get feedback. No, it's just, yeah. I'm just not into that anymore. Okay. And that, that was, again, that was the model that I used to do. I don't have the patience for it anymore. And I don't think it's helpful. I mean, totally. yes, to have someone listen to you and be seen and be... Have a container, very helpful, but not for months and years at a time. 
Okay, time's up. Yeah, <laughs> half hour. We're all set. Okay. Um, when it comes to working with couples, yeah. um, when do you, because for me, as someone who I've been in couples therapy, I've never been worked with a coach yeah. um, in, in a partnership. Like, when do you ever work with couples and you're like, that's totally not going to work? Yeah, for sure. And Yes. What do you do? Cool. You call time of death. So I, mean, I, I don't. Let's say a little bit more love and compassion. So I think there was a time, honestly, there was a time years ago where I had a bit of a reputation as a therapist of being the one that would help couples split. Got it. It was not my intention. It was not a specialty to break people up. Sure. Don't get me wrong, but I had a lot of colleagues who were struggling with couples, and they just felt like they'd hit a wall, and they were feeling like this just is not going. Probably not going to make it. So I didn't have any fear about just being straight up and saying, look, let's call a spade a spade. When it's round peg square hole, yep. I think that there's a lot at stake when there's kids. So if, yeah. if we're just going to keep pretending and nobody, you know, often, look, there are the people that are just angry and screw you and see your uncle. There are yeah. those people. They're not asking for help. But the people who are asking for help, who just sometimes have sat in front of two people, and neither one of them wants to have the responsibility of saying, this just isn't working for me, or I don't have the love anymore, I can't see it. Yeah. So it was like giving permission for them to just call time of death. Now, what that means is not like, see ya, yeah. sorry it didn't work out. Yeah. There's a there's a completion process to a relationship. Wow. So it's about modeling for them how you honor the relationship and honor all the teachings and everything we've learned so that you can complete it honorably and with love so that you can co-parent. Wow. And I tell you that the couples who are willing to do that had really great adjusted kids, well-adjusted kids, as they went through the process, did it seamlessly, did it over time, wow. didn't rush it, and moved on and were very embracing of those ex-partners meeting up with other partners and then bringing, integrating them into the family. I mean, there's a way to do it yeah. that works really well. Yeah. You'll find that divorce doesn't screw kids up. Angry parents who are right. divorcing screws the kids up. Amen. So if it's done tactfully and with maturity and I say that is a mature thing yeah so yeah there are times where and that's when there's kids when there's no kids it's a much easier process yeah but yeah it will be very apparent and it's not like a, a um, an impulsive yeah I've seen you once you guys don't want to make it and yeah when you're really clear when we are really clear it's not just my fault but when it's very apparent after there's a lot of in-depth work there that there are two people that just literally are not aligned either anymore or never were. Yeah. And the reasons they got into the relationship were illusionary or whatever it is. Then giving them permission and showing them the path how to do it with love and not hatred. Yeah. It works. Yeah. And hopefully there's all these couples where you don't have to do that. And you just, you know, give them... I have a lovely couple I work with, really super sweet couple I work with, Israeli couple who married 30 years. And they just hit a wall. And they thought they were going to divorce. They thought there was no way around. And, you know, I was with them today. And, and even in a month, so maybe it's four or five sessions, they're so turned around. Wow. It's really cool. And he said to me today, to give me an idea, he said, you know, we were talking about a breakthrough, maybe with some budget stuff. And he said, you want a bigger breakthrough? The most beautiful thing today? I actually really miss her now. Because mm. he was really shut down. So well, it was just beautiful. It was beautiful to see the willingness of two people who frustrated, feisty, strong-willed, all the things that make people, you know, great, strong characters. Yeah, and sexy and fun and yeah. all the things, yeah. yeah. But they could find a way to... They were very, very sincere people, and I could feel that from the beginning, and I said that at the beginning. And I told them, I said, look, I know I have a reputation. In fact, the person that referred them was a time-of-death kind of person from ah. years ago. Yeah. So they know, 
they're a bit nervous yeah. thinking that that's, <laughs> that, that's not going to happen. Yeah, I, was, I can tell you right now, there's so much care underneath you guys are just stuck. You're like locking horns. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of love there. Wow. And, so, and it proved it because they were willing to do the work. Wow. And they did a lot of, they surprised me a lot. Cool. With, with, well, he surprised me a lot. She was always game. He surprised me of how willing and deep and profound the shift has been. And I'm telling you, four or five sessions. Wow. So the days of working with couples for a year or two, I don't think it's necessary. I love that. Because all someone's doing is listening, which is great. Yeah. But their friends going to listen. I wish I had known that with my ex. Because <laughs> we did like a year. <laughs> and yeah, ended up yeah, right Maybe some people take a long time. That's fine too. I mean, I'm not, again, I don't want to be so cavalier to say that therapy is like, you know, coaching is three easy steps and you're done. It's not that simple. Sure. But I do believe that the reason why people stay in therapy for five, ten years with the same therapist. Yeah. The therapist is not confronting them and getting them out of the door. Yeah. I will stand behind that. I appreciate that. Tell me any therapist who's not got their own issues of trying to keep the person out. Yeah. Because that's what are you doing. Yeah. Totally makes sense. Which, you know, and all the psychoanalysis. Yeah. It's like, where's the significant change in the behaviors? Right. So I would train that way. So I, I, I can speak on it because I was trained psychoanalytically and I, and I know what it's about. It's not really about confronting getting the person out of there. Yeah. At all. So... Huh. That may be a provocative statement to people, but I just, love think it. About it. just think about where you're at. And maybe it's time for a little change of course, a change of approach. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, for people who are looking for more meaning, yeah. people who are looking to define more of a purpose, um, I, of course, I know that it's like a case-by-case situation, I'm sure. But if you have any um, like first tips, whatever yeah. that comes to mind. It's a great question. Well, I think, first of all, it's really brave. It takes a lot of courage to Huge. start to ask the tough questions. I think um, what's necessary is to really make sure you have an inner circle of community around you who will not bullshit you. And I think if you have even two or three really close friends who will bring you the truth, it's ask them some questions. Mm. Like really, uh, and don't ask someone who's going to bullshit you and sell you out. Ask someone, and you, if you're listening to this, you know the people in your life who are going to bring the truth. Mm-hmm. And it's not about judging you and shaming you. It's about just, you're asking for it. When you ask permission, we, we allow people to tell us the truth as mm-hmm. they see it. And it's just a reflection of what do you think? Where do you think I'm stuck? What are my blind spots? Where do you think I'd be better suited? What do you really think about the relationship? And people, people not. People are very plugged in. So it's not about yeah. asking someone to project their story onto you. It's about let people, you know, nail us with where they see we're stuck, blind spots, wherever it is. I think getting the truth, because it will resonate. Truth will either resonate, it will either feel like that really fits, and it takes a lot of courage, what we call, we call it risking the relationship in the men's work. Like I'm risking you being uncomfortable as I tell you the truth. But I'm willing to do that because the relationship's that important to me. Wow. To be authentic with you. So I understand, it's not permission to be an asshole, it's not permission to judge, it's just permission to really say, you know what, you really need to get your ego in check, or yes, I think you've got a major issue with alcohol, you need to take away. Or you know what, it's enough of the pot, it's not working for you. Wow. Let's be honest about your anger and irritation and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The 20 pounds you gain, whatever it is. Whatever the issue is, a friend who's asking for that is ready to hear it. It's what we call being supportable. Mm. Being willing to look at it and be supportive. And if you're not being supportable, it means you don't trust. Well. So in terms of meaning, truth. Hearing the truth, getting the truth, with people who will really tell you. Your mother's not going to tell you the truth. Right. <laughs> Most mothers. Your, your, your high school friend. You know, it has to be someone who's, who is able to have the integrity to 
to know how to be truthful. Yeah. So it's a very select few. You may only have one person in your life that does it. Yeah. But that's really important. I mean, that's what I do with people is bring truth. And I always want to hear the truth. And it's uncomfortable. Yeah. But that's when you know it's important. It's helpful. It's, totally. like, it's like when you get an instinct. When we get intuitive flashes or something, mostly they're uncomfortable. They're not like you're amazing. Right. You know, they're, they're a little bit unsettling. You know, we get almost like a bit... Um, unsettled by a truth about when our instinct is trying to protect us. Instinct is to protect us. Yeah. Not to stroke our ego. So when your instinct is be cautious about that person, especially if we're madly in love with them, it's hard to hear it. Yeah. Same with friends. Same yeah. with friends who have our back. It's not about judging your boyfriend and your girlfriend. It's like, hey, all I can tell you is this is where I see you getting off track when you're in this relationship with this person. These are wow. some of the choices that you make. So to me, that's the beginning of meaning and purpose. Higher purpose is... is High purpose is high purpose. You know, first of all, we're going to get to purpose. Why do I get out of bed in the morning? What, you know, what, what is fulfilling to me? Yes. High purpose, you can't do with high purpose if you can't function paper in. You're not there yet. You know, so we, we do have to still have the, the, um, the wherewithal to show up, do some overgrowth, work hard, pay the bills, yes. be self-sufficient, do the work to, to, to have integrity and all those things. And then once you're in that place, high purpose becomes about, okay, how do I give back? To me, it's about getting out. You have to be out of your own way. I call it the golden rule of leadership, actually, because a lot of leadership is what I teach and mentor. And in order to really be a great leader, you have to feel people. You can't feel them if you're too busy f with your own feelings mm -hmm. about yourself, mm -hmm. like worrying about what people think about us and approval seeking. you got to get all that crap and all that insecurity out the way, truly, before we can start to tune into what's going on with people. God, that's gold. And that's, that's high purpose so gold. related. Yeah. So high purpose to me, again, purpose is, do you like me? High purpose is, how can I best connect with you to serve you and give you the truth? Yeah. No, not everyone's asking for it. Yeah. So you don't go around just blast. Otherwise, you're preaching or, or you know, proselytizing. So to me, it has to be an invitation. It has to be an opening. And people don't always come at us with very clear invitations, but they kind of let us know. Yeah. They kind of let us know how real they're willing to be. Yeah. And I think people... But people show up or they don't show up. I always say that like our ability and willingness to be uncomfortable is in direct proportion to our willingness and ability to like level up yeah. and to grow. Okay. And like if people aren't ready to hear it, they're not ready to hear it. Okay. Wow. That's super cool. Yeah. I love that. Tell me a little bit more about just the men's community and, and what, that, what that means to you and what that's for. Well, I think, you know, so the organization itself is called MDI, which stands for Mentor, Discover, Inspire. Um, and I believe that, you know, the tagline is um, unconditionally committed to men winning. Mm. So it's mentoring. It's a lot of mentoring. It's not a support group. We always say if you're in, if you're in a mentor for 20 years, it's like kind of a therapy thing. Then what are you doing? Yeah. If you're just getting supported. Yeah. Someone telling a story. It's not about that. It's about mentoring in terms of pushing men through barriers, getting men to make commitments, be in action not the story. Mm. You know, and then when you're around, when you're around great men for a long time, and to me it's like that's a round table. That's how I look at it. When I first was invited by my friend um, back in 95, 96, he said, why don't you come visit my men's team? And I went reluctantly, went to, there's like 10 men in a house in Venice. And I was so blown away by the integrity and the honor and the no bullshit and the men being held up, held accountable. I loved it because it reminded me of boarding school. Wow. And LA was just, everyone was just full of shit and like, you know, uh -huh. just, just I loved it. That was the thing that really drew me because I had those kind of you know principles in me. Yeah. 
So I love that there's men you can count on. I love that within the community of men, if you want to have a contractor or a plumber or electrician or a lawyer, you're going to go to those men because yeah. you trust they're not going to gouge you and rip you off. Yeah. So, you know, there's a big, big community of these men and it's not a rah-rah thing. It's very intimate. It's like men who are just, men who've walked through most of the life cycles that new men are coming in and they haven't done. So you know, good. It's how you walk through divorce, how you deal with new parenting, dealing with dating and, you know, getting out of the entanglement of codependency and dealing with addictions. I mean, life. Right, we all will, you know, we, a lot of us on my men's team have been doing this 20, 25 years, but there are new men coming in who are learning just tons of wisdom, which wow. is the best. So good. So, yeah. What makes, <coughs> excuse me, what makes you feel the most connected? Uh, to what? To yourself. Oh. Sorry. Um, <laughs> most, uh, I think that's a great question. I, what I've learned is to really hone in and trust my instinct. And mm. really, really trust myself. And I've learned it over the last probably realistically 20 of those 30 years of doing this work. Um, so, you know, you have to know that in my work, especially, I make very bold statements and give very strong direction, which is not how I was trained as a therapist, remember. Yeah. But I do it now because I trust, I trust the conviction with which I'm delivering it. None of it is about uh, trying to be the one who gets the last say or or the ego of, don't you know who I am? And you have to agree with me. It's, it, none of it's from that. It's a place of just trusting. I get information comes through me all the time. And I really trust it. I know when it's my bullshit. I know when I'm projecting and I just don't speak to that. Mm. But when it comes through and it's really serving the person, how do I know it? Because I've learned to see how it lands and the person be kind of blown away that, that how did you know that? So wow. I've learned to pay attention to what is really accurate and what isn't. And that's, that's a process of learning and, and experience and wisdom. So I get connected um, because I really just trust most of what is, not all of what's kind of going through me, mm. whether it's about me or about other people. And I've learned to ride through the uncomfortable things that I'm hearing and check it out and be a reality check and don't make assumptions and ask the right questions. Mm. The other thing we do really well in men's work is really, it's the art of asking really powerful questions, which is not smart ass questions. It's about helping a man Part of the D of MDI and discovery, I believe, having been a teacher for a few years, is the best way of learning is not to deliver a message, it's having someone discover the message. It's, it, an epiphany lasts a lifetime. When someone really discovers the truth about themselves, the way you've helped them peel the onion to get to it, I think that lasts forever. Truth bombs. Yeah. Totally. yeah. You know, other than just like, like a, I know, because when I used to teach for years, when I'd start in a class and I'd review the previous week, they'd look to me like they had never heard it. Right. So people don't remember information. But they do remember the pin drop moments where someone had that really powerful moment that was emotional or funny or shocking or edge of the seat. That you never forget. Yeah. So to me, it's about having those moments every day. That connects me. And, and also what so connects bad. me outside of me is I get touched the most by acknowledgement. Other mm. people being acknowledged for the transformations and the breakthroughs of the work they've done. Just, just witnessing two people do that slays me. Like, yeah. if it's a really honest Oscar speech, even, yeah. for thanking their grandmother that believed in them, yeah. that will finish me. Yeah. Thanking God <laughs> and all the agents to go back. Yeah. In terms of that, to this day, there's something about acknowledgement I think is the biggest part of it. And it's not, again, it's not stroking ego, it's showing someone you really see the effort and the change that they make. Because we don't often let people know in a real meaningful way. So that, that really connects me a lot too. Amen. Definition of intimacy. 
And then we got to wrap it up because you got to yeah. get out of here. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's the whole into me see. I know that's yeah. always a popular one, but yeah. I, I think it's just, I think it's uh, an uninhibited ability and freedom to just really bring truth. Beautiful. So whether that's bringing the truth that's uncomfortable uh, in, in terms of uh, cautioning someone around something that they're doing that's hurting them or about mm -hmm. to, or just really seeing them for something beautiful and amazing but who they are, I think that's really intimate. And it's really uncomfortable yeah. most of the time. Yeah. Unless it's really flowing, it's great. But there's, there's really, I used to call them really corny moments. Yeah. And there's, you know, I, I learned with my wife who's incredibly able to be intimate and present. I used to call her a walking hallmark card. <laughs> <laughs> with all for love. I had a really hard time receiving it. Yeah. And I used to call it corny and I learned from one of our mentors um, who said that the, the corniness I would describe is the shame of really being seen. Whoa. It's not the shame of I'm a terrible person. Yeah. It's the shame of, wow, when you're used to choosing women who don't see you and aren't available, it's really easy. Yeah. And then someone actually looks into your soul and gets you and like, whoa, what do I do with that? Holy so shit. A few years of that. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Fun. Okay, rapid fire on. I just want to ask you this or that and yeah. just answer whatever comes to yeah. mind. Coffee or tea? Tea. Introvert or extrovert? Extrovert, no. Um, yoga, asana, or seated meditation if you practice? Yoga. Yeah, sex or sleep? <laughs> <laughs> 53, so let's go with sleep. <laughs> Sorry, Danny, love you. Um, bourbon or wine if you drink? Uh, wine. New York or LA? LA, man. Ebook yeah. e or hard copy? You just say e-book? E-book, like oh, a, e like oh, no, a never e in my yeah. life. Yeah. <laughs> never in my <laughs> life. <laughs> he didn't even know what it meant, y'all. Um, shower or bath? Shower. Milk or dark chocolate? Dark chocolate. Phone call or text? Oh, are you talking about milk chocolate? Dark chocolate. No, milk chocolate. Milk. Not I, milk. Yeah, yeah. No, milk chocolate. Yeah, milk chocolate. Milk chocolate. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> phone call or text? Um, phone call. Intelligence or humor? Humor. Money or fame? That's brutal. I know. Money or fame? Don't we? Where can we connect to you? How do we find oh, you? So you can find me on my website. It's jamiegreen.com. It's J-A-M-I-E-G-R-E-E-N-E. -E -E. Yes. jamiegreen.com. You can find me there. Um, everything that you need to know about me is there. You Perfect. You can get my numbers. You can get my emails. You can... His social me. security number. It's yeah. <laughs> Jamie, thanks for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure. You're a gem. This is fun. <laughs> You guys, thank you so much for tuning in today. What an absolute gift. Uh, please do connect to me. I would love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook, um, social media in general at Alexa Silvaggio. And if you do have a second, I would be super grateful if you left us a review on iTunes. Why? Well, because that actually makes us more visible to everyone. And I'm all about spreading the good stuff, right? Spreading the goods, getting the word out because I want us all to benefit. I want us all to feel good. I want us all to thrive. So this is your gentle reminder, my love, to go out there and create an epic life. All my love. <laughs> <laughs>